Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have my christening on the peak of Pride Rock, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, I'm just the conductor, standing, keeping the tempo, as we watch through 57 films and counting. As ever, our symphony orchestra is but one man. The legendary Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how's it going? Yeah, I'm all right. At the minute, I'm just trying to heal my blistered thumbs, which have just uh, spent a long time trying to get past level one of the Sega Genesis game inspired by the film we're going to be talking about today. The Sega Genesis game of Fantasia? Yeah, the Sega Genesis game of Fantasia from 1991. Uh, It's available to play on the internet if you want. I wouldn't recommend it. It's incredibly difficult. Did you find like an emulator on PC? You haven't, you didn't dig out an old Mega Drive, did you? <laughs> I didn't dig it out. I'm not even sure if, if any copies of this game exist or if they've all been destroyed by infuriated platformer aficionados. Man, old games are hard. I don't know if it's um, just my memories of it, but I had the uh, Aladdin and Lion King games, which I think were the, the same Sega Mega Drive ones. We had those on PC. And oh, the memories I have of the I just can't wait to be king level, trying to grab all the monkey hands and land on the giraffe's heads. Oh, it was brutally difficult. Yeah, those games look gorgeous, but I've been through I've been through Aladdin, I've been through The Lion King. I cannot get past level one of Fantasia. I can't get past the Sorcerer's Apprentice segment, jumping over those broomsticks, trying to grab little musical notes. It's an absolute nightmare. Who needs Dark Souls when you've got Fantasia on Sega Mega Drive? <laughs> so that's enough tuning up from us. We're all sat down, the register is complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the frankly terrifying sights of Pinocchio, we get into the Walt Disney Animation Studios' other 1940 classic, the audiovisual extravaganza that is Fantasia. So Sam, Fantasia is so different to the films that we've spoken about for the last two weeks. We had Snow White, then we had Pinocchio, which were so groundbreaking in their own ways, but they were narrative, feature animated films, And then Fantasia comes along and it is something completely different. So I guess for anyone who hasn't seen Fantasia or isn't that familiar with it, how how would you sum up Fantasia? There's not really a a plot to describe here, but how how would you sum it up? Yeah, unlike Snow White and Pinocchio, which were both based on these kind of classic, perennial, relatively simplistic storylines from literature and fairy tales, Fantasia doesn't really have a plot running all the way through, but it is based on kind of classical yeah, European works of art. It's based on classical music instead of 
drawn on these older existing stories. So Fantasia is basically an anthology of short kind of featurettes, each of which is set to a different famous piece of classical music, and each of which tries to visualize that music in slightly different ways. Yeah, and each of those segments is is so different. Obviously, we'll get into discussing them all uh, a little bit later in the show. But it's fascinating this idea of uh, of especially at that time at 1940, taking these really beloved pieces of classical music and extrapolating that into animated visions of of what those stories could be. And sometimes it alludes to the fact that there are literal stories in these songs when they're from operas or certain symphonies, but finding alternate stories or trying to find a new sort of narrative within these yeah extraordinary pieces of classical music. It's a it's kind of overwhelming to watch it now, but I can't imagine what it would have been like in 1940 going out to go and see something like this. Yeah, well, we'll get into the kind of the exhibition and the reception of the film a bit more later, both of which are very interesting in their own right. But yeah, this was in some ways quite a controversial endeavour for Disney, not only because he's doing something completely new with the medium of animation, and even in many ways with the medium of cinema, but also because he is trying to visualise this art form which a lot of people believed should not be visualized, should be something that we experience hourly, should be something that um, you know we can conjure these own images in our head. We shouldn't be trying to tie these symphonic works to specific concrete visual ideas. So what I want to ask you, Ben, first of all is when was the last time you saw Fantasia, if at all? How familiar are you with Fantasia? So it's a while, it's a long time since I've seen it in full. There were a lot of bits of this that I didn't remember, but this is actually definitely one of the ones that we did have on VHS. And I used to watch at least bits of it quite a lot as a kid. I think especially the dinosaur one, because, I mean, I am still a dinosaur-obsessed kid at the age of 28. I'm still that that kid. So I think there were certain segments in it that I really remembered that I, I do have like memories of asking my mum to put it back on, which she was probably like, why does he want to watch this? It's like really abstract and strange, and it doesn't have the sort of, I don't know, the lighthearted Disney feel to a lot of the other... Um, Disney movies, but I think I had a bit of a of an attachment to at least parts of it growing up, and I had this weird thing as well. I always had this feeling when I was a kid that sometimes when I watched the VHS, there would be a segment with dinosaurs, but sometimes I would watch it and it wasn't there. It had this like magical quality that there were like certain segments of the film that sometimes they were there when you watch the VHS and sometimes they weren't. In hindsight, it's just that it's really, really long. It's a very long film and I was probably watching it in like 20 minute, half an hour chunks. And I'd be like, where's the dinosaur bit? And that was an hour ago. So um, yeah, I had quite a few memories of Fantasia, but I didn't know it super well, which made it actually really fascinating going and watching it now watching it fully and seeing it in just a whole new context in a whole new light and i guess the other question to ask somebody um going in or coming out of fantasia is and i've known you for for a long time ben i've known you for coming on 10 years and i think this is something i would know about you if it was true but i've got to ask are you a classical music head no no i'm not a classical <laughs> music guy i mean you know you know these songs though you know these sweets it feels weird even calling them songs they're not songs they're like musical sweets yeah it's hard not to know a lot of these songs or even like there'll be certain strains within them that you're like oh it's this one and you were talking about the controversy of trying to intrinsically link these images that disney have conjured with these 
otherwise already very famous pieces of classical music. The only one I think actually really, really does that is the Sorcerer's Apprentice one. That's the only one that I think a lot of people would instinctively connect that imagery of, of Mickey and all the brooms with that song. I think with the others, it's just a really interesting interpretations. Like, I, I don't think people are going to go like Beethoven. He's the Fantasia guy, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm not a classical music head, but I think you'd struggle not to recognize quite a lot of the music. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same. Everything I know about classical music comes from Fantasia. Uh, it's got me through a couple of pub quizzes. It's got me through a couple of questions on University Challenge. Um, mm-hmm. But that's my, my knowledge of classical music and classical composers begins and ends with Disney's Fantasia. There's always that moment watching University Challenge where Paxman goes, it's time for the music round. And you're like, here we go, here we go. Please say popular music. Please say popular music. And every time he says classical music, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to know any of this unless it was on Fantasia. (laughs) So given that, what were your overall impressions of watching it this time around? So I was very impressed and there was loads of amazing stuff and it is a feast for the eyes and ears and it feels like it was specifically designed to be that at the same time it's long isn't it it's over two hours and it was a lot of classical music with lovely lovely imagery alongside it but i have to say there were moments that i drifted a bit it's it's like any anthology movie there are going to be segments that are really amazing that really stand out and there are going to be segments that you're like, that was fine. But it, it's such an impressive thing. I think it works so much better as a as an event, as something you would specifically go out to see. You would maybe even get a bit dressed up of an evening to go out and see Fantasia, that it was a, a cultural event. It was a cultural spectacle. I think sitting down just to watch it as a movie now, it's it just doesn't quite work in that context, but it wasn't designed to work in that context. So I enjoyed it a lot. I think at the end of it, I was ready for Fantasia to end. I was done with Fantasia. <laughs> but um, it's so impressive, and especially seeing it in the context of it being only the third Disney movie being such a weird risk, it's, yeah, even more impressive for that. So I, I think I have even more respect for it now, um, even if I'm not going to be there in two weeks' time. Like, let's sit down, crack open a beer, and watch Fantasia? Yeah, maybe. So maybe you would more go back to it in the context of like picking out specific shorts like oh i really fancy a bit of the sorcerer's apprentice i could really go for a slice of Toccata and fugue in d minor right now oh man sometimes that's all you want nothing can can quench your thirst for what was it fugue in d minor you gotta go for fantasia <laughs> just give me give me just a quick hit of that bark baby <laughs> exactly if i ever say that when i'm around at yours you know to stick on the fantasia pronto so i'm fascinated by the idea of how this film came about how walt disney and the rest of the team at, uh, at the studio came up with the idea for fantasia and especially i didn't know before we did this that it was in production at the same time as pinocchio just off the back of the success of snow white so how did Fantasia come about and where did the idea come from? How did Walt come up with this mad idea? So the seeds of Fantasia were actually sown with the idea for the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And we'll talk in a bit more detail about that particular segment and how that came about later on. But that is a segment starring Mickey Mouse kind of acting out the plot 
uh, of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And Walt originally conceived that as a standalone Mickey Mouse short. It would have been a, a longer than usual Mickey Mouse short. It would have been like a two-reeler instead of a single kind of six-minute cartoon. But that was where the original idea came from. And uh, Walt went to Leopold Stokowski, the conductor, to ask him to contribute the music to this, ask him to orchestrate and arrange the music for the Sorcerer's Apprentice short. So, Ben, are you familiar with Leopold Stokowski? I wasn't before this, and that was something that I completely did not remember from watching this as a kid. I One of the things I really loved about re-watching this was seeing the whole presentation of it, having Stokowski and Deems Taylor addressing the audience, talking to the audience, even the way that Stokowski is, is framed in those silhouettes with the big, bright, colourful backgrounds. It's very, very filmic in that sense, and it's about the presentation of him as a conductor and of that as a way to tee up the music it was all of that stuff was so impressive so i couldn't remember any of that didn't know who stokowski was was he a big deal then was he a, a sort of famous dude yes stokowski was a huge deal he was the conductor of the philadelphia symphony orchestra he was one of the well he was probably the biggest conductor in America, like at a time when classical music was still something, it was still kind of almost a popular concern. It was something a lot of people were into. Stokowski was like a byword for classical music. Um, he was he was that famous. And if you look at like the poster for Fantasia and the original trailer for Fantasia, Stokowski's name is up there next to Waltz. So he was a huge draw to bring audiences into this movie with the familiarity of his name and also to kind of legitimize the whole endeavor by attaching it as somebody uh, who was synonymous with classical music but he was also a huge part of just the conception of the whole endeavor so when walt started working with sakovsky on the sources apprentice they got talking about this idea to make a whole what at the time was known as the concert feature is what it was originally going to be called a classical music concert accompanied by walt and his team's animated images so sakovsky was there with walt kind of in the process of picking out every song that we're going to use and in the process of thinking about how they were going to visualize each piece. It's funny thinking about that as being the cell that that Disney is a huge drawer and Stokowski's a huge drawer. And it's like, I don't know, when you you see a project, a film project coming together the, the, these days and it's like, oh, it's this director working with this screenwriter and those two combined is going to be amazing. I imagine they're in the um, late 30s and, and in 1940, everyone was like, oh my God, the Disney-Stokowski crossover. It's everything I ever dreamed of. The guy who gave us Snow White and this big conductor dude that apparently everybody knows. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was the master of animation and the master of classical orchestration coming together to produce this thing that was kind of a meeting of minds, meeting in the middle between these two art forms. And it was a symbiotic relationship whereby Stokowski would give Walt the cachet and the credibility that he needed with the classical music crowd, and Walt would bring these classical pieces to a, a new audience of kind of children and families and just this kind of popular audience. And so they... they made it at the same time as Pinocchio but Pinocchio came out first was that because they thought it was going to be a big weird shift going from Snow White going to this that was Pinocchio seen as a sort of safer bet heading out but before Fantasia hit I mean it certainly was a safer bet but I think the main reason why it came out first was that the whole um, plan for the release of Fantasia was actually going to be quite an idiosyncratic enterprise it was Fantasia was not released like a normal film it was well the the main thing about the release of fantasia was they developed a whole new sound system in order to exhibit it so walt and 
Stokowski and you know various sound technicians worked together to create what they called Fanta Sound, which was the first. It was essentially the first surround sound system. This was the first film with stereophonic sound. And that meant that any cinema that wanted to exhibit it had to have Fantasound installed. And that meant that the release of Fantasia was a very slow rollout, whereby it was exhibited in what's called a roadshow. So it would play in one city for a prolonged engagement in one cinema. And then it would move on to another city and it would work its way around America like that. And each of these cinemas in turn had to install this Fantasound device. Um, so it was actually in cinemas for a long, long time. It was its a, a initial run, if you can call it that, was about two or three years, all in all. Wow. I mean, it sounds expensive and a, and a big deal for cinemas to overhaul their whole cinema sound system. But I mean, I guess if it, it must have become a sort of sensation or a phenomenon, right? People must have been excited when Fantasia was, was coming to town. Was, was that the case? Do we know? kind of (laughs) kind of we haven't got to the bit i have no idea how this did financially i wonder if you're holding back the fact that it completely died on its ass we'll hold back on this for a bit uh until until we talk about the reception at the end yeah definitely um but it was i think what it's worth saying at this point was like you said earlier it was designed as an event it was like a night out it was the concert feature you would you know, go to the cinema for for two hours and you would sit down, you would take in this experience with this sound system that was meant to create the illusion of the orchestra being in the room with you. It's funny thinking about, I mean, maybe it was dead expensive at the time and it wasn't super accessible, but it was on my mind watching this. I mean, as we record this, Hamilton has not long dropped on Disney Plus. And part of the idea of putting Hamilton on Disney Plus was just making that show hugely accessible to a wide audience to get people who wouldn't necessarily always be able to go to the theater especially in new york or london or wherever and take that show and stick it on the internet for everyone to see and it struck me a little bit that potentially the idea behind fantasia maybe was not everyone has access to go and see a symphony orchestra we can make a film that gives you a symphonic concert that gives you this sort of cultural experience uh in a sort of high culture sense with this sort of extra filmic element attached and make it really accessible for a lot of people but who knows maybe maybe it was super expensive to get a ticket especially once every cinema has to install fanta sound i love the idea of fanta sound by the way now <laughs> i just i just picture fanta the drink that's all i can think of also the fanta sound thing reminds me of when uh, avatar was coming out and james cameron was sort of personally going around or sending maybe even sending minions around to like tune up IMAX screenings. I think that was the beginning of IMAX laser presentation where it was a step up from sort of bog standard IMAX. If IMAX could ever be deemed bog standard, that it was like this new cultural experience that demanded to be seen with the sort of tip top precision of projection. And so, yeah, there was this big effort around uh, improving IMAX projectors and presentations so that avatar was seen in like the primo primo presentation sounds like he sort of cribbed that a bit from old fantasound 
Yeah, I mean, there was a guy at the Walt Disney Studio who's, well, employed by Walt Disney, whose job was to go to the cinema that was going to exhibit this. Uh, it was originally, I think, the Broadway Cinema in New York, and make sure that it sounded exactly right, make sure everything was installed correctly, but also to make sure that, like, the frontage of the cinema was how Walt wanted it to be, that the curtains in the cinema was how Walt wanted them to look, and to place little um, theatre programmes on everybody's seats and things like that. So it was really about controlling people's experience of this film and trying to make it as much as possible. Uh, I don't want to say a substitute, but an equivalent to going to see a classical concert. Mm. And it's, it's, yeah, it's funny you talking about the roadshow presentation as well, because it feels very fitting for that. Like, it, obviously, those don't tend to happen that often anymore, although I did see the Hateful Eight roadshow presentation in London um, a few years ago. And with that, part of the experience was that you had a musical introduction, you had the score playing for a few minutes at the beginning as a sort of overture. Then you had sort of the curtains opening it. It was an extra wide screen presentation. And then in the middle, you had an interval and you had, I think there was like a bit of a musical break in there as well. So it was all about the presentation and especially highlighting the score and that being part of the value of going out for that experience. And that totally makes sense for Fantasia. Yeah, and it was, you know, what Walt wanted from this movie for himself and for the medium of animation was to kind of take it to this next level to legitimize it as an art form. So it's like we can make cartoons, we can make like comic animation, and we can make fairy tale features, but we can also make this, we can make high art. That we can make something to stand alongside the works of Beethoven and Bach without that seeming like a contradiction in terms. So let's kick off our main discussion then of Fantasia and let's go back to something that I mentioned earlier on that really surprised me and that I really liked which was yeah the whole introduction you have Deems Taylor greeting the audience you you have the orchestra entering then tuning up hearing the crowd murmuring I love that that's part of the soundtrack of the film because surely the audience in the cinema was having that experience as well having these huge silhouettes of the musicians as they as they enter uh, to to take their place and their presence already looms really large before a single note has even really been played you have deems taylor calling it a new form of entertainment using this phrase absolute music which is just like i kind of love the ballsiness of trying to like brand this experience and they make a huge deal of, of stakovsky coming out which as you say he he was a huge deal it feels really special and still feels surprising as well that we are talking about this as a Disney animated feature, but there was actually quite a lot of live action stuff here. Um, yeah, I think the purpose of that is to ground people in the concert hall experience. I mean, the first segment, uh, which I guess we'll move on to now, which is to Carter and Fugue in D minor by Bach, does not open with the animation. You get quite a long period of time spent at the beginning of that number with the orchestra, just watching them play the instruments to you know, ground the audience in the fact that you're watching the concert, you're watching this conductor, and you're watching these musicians, um, and th they are kind of creating the sound that you're hearing. It's, it's, it's a unique you know, recording, it's a unique arrangement, it's a unique piece of orchestration. It's songs that you've heard before, but you're hearing this guy conduct it, and you're hearing these guys play it. 
that whole transition from the live action orchestra to them playing to then this sort of transition from the literal photography to the animated graphic representations of music of sparks dancing through the skies of of animated string bows appearing in the air all of that stuff is is amazing and i think by the end of the film it's not one of the most memorable segments but as a way to ease you into the film ease you into the idea and like you said highlight the fact that this is a performance it's not it's not just a soundtrack this is the soundtrack is the film you know it it just really shows right from the beginning that this music and this animation are perfect companions they were designed to be together or at least the animation was designed to not just complement but to highlight the music as well it felt like you know today you might go out to a firework presentation set Mm. to music it felt kind of like that where it's like what can we do that adds extra visual spectacle to this already incredible musical arrangement so just to set up what um Decatur and fugue is what the Decatur and fugue sequence is it's introduced by dean's taylor who's the master of ceremonies and he says that within this film we're gonna hear three different kinds of composition we're gonna hear music that is meant to evoke a set story and a set narrative we're going to hear music that is more about creating kind of impressions and tones and we're going to hear uh, what he calls absolute music which is music for its own sake which doesn't have any kind of set imagery attached to it and he says that is what this number is going to be so the way that this is animated is with lots of sort of abstract i'm hesitant to use the, the phrase abstract because that's not quite what we're looking at here but it's it's abstracted imagery The reason why I'm hesitant to use the word abstract is because this was initially envisioned as a completely abstract piece. Like at this time, there was already a grown tradition in avant-garde animation of what was called visual music. So animators like Mary Ellen Butte and Len Lai, both of whom are worth looking up on YouTube, were creating these completely abstracted pieces that were meant to evoke the emotional process of listening to music rather than any specific images. And Walt enlisted one of these guys called Oscar Fischinger to work on this sequence and to help him visualize this sequence and to create, you know, what you might call absolute animation as a companion to absolute music. Nice. I see what you did there. That was good. (laughs) And Fischinger kind of started off working with Walt, but they grew apart because their ideas on this differed. So if you watch one of Fischinger's films... It's just big squares and big circles and huge fields of color moving in time with the music. It's totally about this emotional experience. And Walt, even though he's got Deans Taylor in the introduction talking about how this is going to be a purely visual piece, you know, it's going to be visual music. Walt wasn't quite comfortable with that. And he was pushing more towards let's make it look like strings. Let's make it look like bows. So Fischinger kind of parted ways with Walt on that count. Wow. So was this one of the first ones that they did then that caused that that rift? Was this an early part of the of the process? Uh, apart from the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which came first, all of the sequences were, were being worked on at around the same time. So it, it's not we don't totally know in what order everything was produced. We've got some idea, but it was all kind of different units working on different ideas and different sequences. So it's not totally abstract, but what Dean says is that this is meant to be the images that are running through your head while you're listening to a piece of music. And do do you feel that that was kind of achieved here? 
Yeah, I do. I think um, especially the way that it, like you said, when those sort of animated string bows appear, that it sort of takes control of your synapses in a way. It guides you through the music with the imagery. So I think it does a really good job with that. And it is beautiful that the way that it ends with all these rays of, of heavenly lights, of these big gusts of air, of this huge rising sun at the end. And it goes from being absolute music, so pretty abstract as far as these things go, and then it leads into one that is much less abstract, so that the second piece is the Nutcracker Suite, and they sack off the Nutcracker story. They're like, we don't need the Nutcracker. Instead, we're going to have loads of fairies and dancing flowers and lots of pretty natural imagery. Yeah, so that's that's especially interesting in the context of what Deems Taylor said at the start, because he said that you've got pieces which are meant to tell a specific story and surely one of those pieces is the nutcracker but by their own admission they just completely abandon the story of the nutcracker i have to say what they went for instead this is the one that i remember the least this one didn't really stand out to me i have to say i I thought it was interesting the way that they presented the fairies because it was kind of i don't know proto tinkerbell esque mm. interesting seeing especially after we had the blue fairy in pinocchio who was a a life-sized woman and rotoscoped and this time you have fairies but they're they're smaller fairies and they're more cartoony looking thought that was kind of interesting and i thought the animation is it is beautiful but i don't know this one didn't really have a huge impact for me do, do you have a lot of affection for the nutcracker section i do like the nutcracker section actually i mean just to, again to kind of set up what it is abandoning the storyline of the Tchaikovsky ballet, which is about a nutcracker doll that comes to life and takes a little girl into a fantasy world. Look, I went to see the Nutcracker uh, with my partner a couple of years ago at Christmas and I fell asleep, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) And she won't let me live that down. (laughs) And she's always suggesting going to a different ballet. And I'm like, no, I love the ballet. I would love to go and see another ballet. And she's like, but you fell asleep. There was no animation. (laughs) There was no animation. There were no, as I've written here, slightly racist mushrooms. Why have okay. I written slightly racist mushrooms? I don't remember. So the mushrooms, this version of the Nutcracker is set in a kind of loose forest environment. And you move through, you start with these fairies, which are drawn from the idea of the sugar plum fairy, who was a character in the Nutcracker. So I think that was their jumping off point. And then you move through other kind of vignettes within the forest other kind of types of flowers and plants and animals dancing to the pieces from the nutcracker now the pieces in the nutcracker or the the ones that this focuses on are from a set of dancers in the ballet based basically around ethnic stereotypes so there's a russian dance there's a chinese dance and there's an arab dance and you get that here the russians are like kind of thistles and the chinese dancers are mushrooms and the arab dancers are fish and i think especially the the mushrooms are one of the elements of fantasia which come across as somewhat dated as disney plus has it in its descriptions it may contain outdated cultural depictions one thing that stood out with this one was that it kind of it goes through the seasons so it starts very springy and summery and then Later on, you have sort of autumnal leaves and you have everything freezes over and the fairies are sort of on the ice and stuff. You have a a suite of of seasons in this one. 
Yeah, and this is kind of a theme that is obviously new to the Nutcracker. It's something that the, the Disney studio have introduced, and it is reflective of a thematic concern that I think moves through a lot of these pieces in Fantasia, which is the idea of nature and like the cyclicality of nature. I'm not even sure if that's a word. Um, kind of death and rebirth and winter and spring and you know the movement of time is something that crops up in a lot of these pieces in different ways. And I'm not even sure if that was kind of, it's unlikely that that was a deliberate thematic concern because of the way that these were all being developed by separate units and things like that. But it is noteworthy. And and the idea of um, kind of the primacy of nature and uh, the primality of nature, again, not sure if that's a word, is something that comes through here for the first time. And there is a lot of that to come as well. I think one thing that stood out to me with the Nutcracker suite is that it felt like the warm-up to the main event. And it kind of was, because the thing that follows that section up is the big one, the one that everyone remembers, the one that is most fondly thought of. It's the one that springs to mind when you think Fantasia, and that is The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is Mickey Mouse living the story of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, having a horrible, horrible time that feels like an anxiety dream. And this is the first time we actually see Mickey Mouse in a Disney movie, in like a Disney feature film. That that's a huge deal. Yeah, and again, it was originally conceived as a short, as a standalone piece. And the intention behind that original piece was to kind of resurrect the career of Mickey Mouse, because by this point he was being overshadowed in the shorts by, um, particularly by Donald and Goofy and Pluto. He almost became a supporting player in his own universe and his own line of films so this was let's give let's make a big budget to real extravaganza that really gets across who mickey is and brings him to almost to kind of a new generation as well like a new generation of kids that's acquaint them with mickey mouse so was he widely known at that point because he was in a load of shorts but those shorts surely you had to go out to a cinema to see them maybe it didn't disseminate in the same way that things would now so how much of a big deal was mickey before fantasia oh he, he was an enormous deal he was he was hugely well known um he was hugely influential in animation in terms of his influence on other animated stars he was a huge merchandising phenomenon everybody did know mickey mouse and there were still mickey mouse shorts coming out into the cinema and doing incredibly well like if you put a mickey mouse short in front of a film that was as much the draw as the feature film but by this point it had already gotten to the point whereby mickey had lost a lot of his original personality when he started off he was like a troublemaker he is a cheeky guy in Steamboat Willie. He's causing havoc all over the place. Yeah, but then when he became the icon of the Walt Disney Company, the start to kind of sand down those edges and made him this everyman figure who plays the straight man to Donald Duck and Goofy, who have much more well-developed personalities and much more appealing personalities and obvious like shticks that run through their work. Uh, so if you go and see a Mickey Mouse short at this point in time in the cinema, you will tend to see Mickey Mouse... And Donald and Goofy will like work as firemen or as clock cleaners or as Ghostbusters in one film. And then Mickey Mouse will kind of fall into the background while Donald and Goofy get up to antics. So Mickey Mouse is still the marquee name, but he's not the most popular character anymore. Whereas here, he causes all kinds of problems by basically being a bit of a lazy git. 
I sort of sympathise with him that he's like, I've got to go around carrying these buckets and actually, why don't I just use magic, make the broom with a weirdly animated butt do it and then Bob's your uncle, except he then falls asleep on the job. I think that's the real flaw. It's not getting the mop to do the job for him. It's falling asleep and thinking that everything's going to be fine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so this one was based on the composition by Ducasse, but that in turn was based on a poem by Goethe, um, which is based on a much older story. So we're trying to fit Mickey into this existing storyline here and make him perform the role of the Sorcerer's Apprentice in this piece, which means that, yeah, he has to be this kind of lazy guy who is trying to cut corners. His master, the wizard, the sorcerer, I guess, tells him to clean the floors and he would rather magic these brooms to do it. And then that all gets out of hand. And I think the first mistake he makes is actually when he tries to murder the broom with an axe. Mickey creates life like Victor Frankenstein himself and then tries to destroy it. (laughs) God, I didn't think of it on that level. Yeah, and there's this really quite striking image of, you see it only in shadow, but of Mickey raising the axe and using it to really go to town and and tear this broom a new one. And then the broom splits into two and it continues to multiply until there's loads of brooms and loads of buckets and the flood in the whole place. The scene with the axe where he chops up the broom is it is really brutal. There's a real force to it. I think it has that element that was kind of parodied so heavily in something like Itchy and Scratchy uh, in The Simpsons, where he, like you said, he absolutely goes to town on that thing. And it's weird that that was his first instinct after magically bringing this thing to life. Instead of using magic to stop it, he's like, I'm going to kill it with an axe. And it's not just that he kills it it's like it turns into all these splinters and all the splinters all the individual pieces of it then gain sentience it's it's it it does feel like an anxiety dream like a sort of horrible nightmare yeah it's it's actually it's one of the darkest pieces right it's probably in the top three darkest segments of fantasia it's the mickey mouse one and it is gorgeously animated as well like everything else in this film it's it's well like almost everything else it's luscious and beautiful and this was the first time they gave mickey mouse like real eyes with pupils to help him express himself a bit more as well so it was like this is it's not a feature-length film starring mickey mouse and there's yet to be a feature-length film starring mickey mouse but it is given him a lot more expression it's given him a bit more depth as a character although according to some sources ben you might be pleased to know that this was originally going to be dopey oh my god dopey from the from snow white the worst dwarf yeah exactly so i don't know how true this is because it does kind of contradict with the narrative of let's make this mickey mouse's comeback but according to some sources it was originally thrown around as a dopey vehicle and it's also worth mentioning that in the um, trailer for Fantasia, the scene with the mushrooms, the dancing mushrooms, there's a little stupid mushroom. And in the trailer for Fantasia, it says, oh, look, it's the dopey of mushrooms. <laughs> what a sell. What a draw. Well, I'm so glad that this was Mickey Mouse instead of Dopey, partly because obviously I hated Dopey. And also because when I went to Disneyland Paris when I was seven, one of the main things that I came away with, as well as loads of wonderful memories, was a Mickey Mouse wizard hat, a sorcerer's hat with Mickey Mouse ears on it, that it wasn't really until I was rewatching it now that it clicked of like, oh, it's the Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey. I thought it was just like that everything at Disneyland has Mickey Mouse ears on it, but it is specifically that blue pointy hat with the moon and the stars with the little Mickey ears on it. So I had a, an extra attachment to that. Yeah, you're walking around with this hat, but this hat represents hubris. This hat represents <laughs> reaching for power that you can't understand and can't control. Good job I didn't 
wear that and pick up any brooms and then they became sentient and then it's basically Westworld but with <laughs> sentient brooms. I, so th- because this is the the big short <laughs> in Fantasia, I have to say that it was slightly shorter than I remembered. I think as a child you have this memory of it being so visceral, this escalating chaos, this increasing anxiety of of all the brooms multiplying. In my head, it went on a lot longer than it did. It sort of felt like it was, um, it went from naught to 60 in about five seconds, and then it couldn't get any bigger than it did. And, and then the, the sorcerer has to come in and, and sort everything out. But it still feels like one of the most memorable segments in this, not just because of Mickey. I think it feels very narratively distinct. It has such a clear narrative. It's way less kind of floaty than some of the other ones. Quite a few of them have a narrative, but it's like smaller narratives woven into this just generally atmospheric piece. Whereas this one right from the off is like, we're going to tell you this creepy story. Yeah, a lot of the pieces in this are kind of torn poems. They are trying to evoke mood and setting without telling a particular story. And this definitely has the strongest story of the lot. So I can see why that would uh, appeal more to, to someone like you, Ben, to the general audience. So the sorcerer comes in, everything gets sorted out, but that is not the end of Mickey in this film because there's a really lovely bit where after that sequence has ended and we're back with with Sikovsky, we're back with the conductor, Mickey's silhouette comes on and tugs him on the trousers. I thought that was such a cute little touch. That felt very Disney in terms of just that charm. Yeah, Mickey bounds in in silhouette and he, he grabs all of his trousers and he says, Congratulations, Mr. Stokowski! And then Stokowski says, congratulations to you too, Mickey. And it's like, (laughs) congratulations for what? Like, why is that what you say? You've got these two icons meeting each other for the first time. This real representation of um, the meeting of minds between Disney and Stokowski. And you go with, congratulations to you too, Mickey. What, for just for continuing to exist? For Fantasia? (laughs) What are we congratulating each other on here? Everyone patting themselves on the back. And I would like to congratulate you for a very good Mickey Mouse impression. <laughs> and I would like to congratulate you for just this fabulous podcast that we're halfway through. Oh, it wouldn't be anything without you, Sam. You are the Mickey to my Stokowski. <laughs> Let's get into the Rite of Spring. But before we do, there's another fun bit with the orchestra before that section kicks off. And that's the chimes falling off the block, which I don't know if that was a an intentional thing, if that was like a scripted bit of comedy, or if that just happened when they were doing the orchestra bit and they were like, this is kind of fun, we'll keep it in. But it adds to that whole playful presentation of, of the whole thing. Yeah, you know what? I wish I could answer that, but I can't. It does seem semi-improvised, but it could also very well have been arranged. It could very well have been scripted. But yeah, it does. It gives you a bit of levity before we get into probably the heaviest piece in the whole batch. That was my thought too, that they were just like, we need a laugh in here because we're about to send the audience headfirst into some really intense shit. And that is The Rite of Spring, which is the sequence that I often wondered whether it existed at all with all of the dinosaurs that is the sort of the genesis of life on earth as they thought it happened in the 1940s and it's big and violent and there are dinosaurs killing each other there are jellyfish eating live fish and it begins with this incredible shot if you want to call it that of the camera if you want to call it that zooming through the milky way sort of slowly easing into into our galaxy and then down into the earth itself it's a really big impressive 
blockbusting sequence. And that's before you even get to the dinosaurs. I mean, I I know this might be controversial with you, Ben. I prefer the first half of the sequence. It, it, it splits almost exactly in half where for about 10 minutes you get the formation of Earth and you get all the tectonic plates crashing into each other and volcanoes erupting and things like that. And then you get the, the very beginnings of life with like microorganisms developing in the ocean. And then once you get into the dinosaurs, for me, it's like, eh. Okay, I mean, I like dinosaurs. The dinosaurs look cool, but the the sort of just the sheer power of those earlier sequences, I think that's almost the apotheosis of what Fantasia is. It's like let's do something that you cannot do outside of animation, and it just creates such forceful evocative imagery to a very strange and dark and unsettling piece of music. Yeah, I I, I prefer the dinosaur bit. But I will say that the opening half of this is super impressive. It's so it feels so apocalyptic. The the all those volcanoes belching flames and all the lava erupting everywhere. It's such violent imagery. It's so it conjures something that live action films at the time could never do. And there's such a vision to this sort of really intense chaos on the screen. But it is all a warm up to the dinosaurs, right? And I was impressed with the dinosaurs here because they get kind of a lot right. It's really interesting just as a representation of what they thought dinosaurs were like in 1940. But within that, you get some dinosaurs with feathers. You get recognizable sort of Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, baby Triceratops, super cute. And then it all builds up to the T-Rex. Now, as a Jurassic Park obsessive, it's my favorite film. It's kind of amazing to see disney going so big on these dinosaurs and it's impossible not to think that spielberg must have been inspired in some way influenced in some way of presenting dinosaurs on screen in the way that they're seen in fantasia because it is all this build-up to the t-rex has come in he is the absolute bad boy he is the big murderous red-eyed devil and when he comes up he just like starts killing people he suddenly kills a uh a stegosaurus and it's really brutal it's and and like you said as well the music in this segment is so intense i i was kind of really impressed by this sequence but it was also a lot to take because it's so overwhelming and between the music and the imagery it it really really comes at you yeah and the 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 animation on these dinosaurs especially when the t-rex is fighting the stegosaurus which is kind of the big centerpiece of the whole thing there's so much weight to it, which I think is one of the... I think I mentioned weight when I was talking about Stromboli and Monstro in Pinocchio. And I think it's one of the most impressive things is how the animators create skill and weight and volume. And they use all of these low angles when depicting this dinosaur fight that just really makes you look feel like you're standing on the ground looking up at them about to get stepped on. Yeah, completely. I mean, the the T-Rex the and the, the Stegosaurus and stuff, super impressive. There are some slightly derpy looking ones in there. There are some slightly, uh, <laughs> maybe the dopey of dinosaurs is in there somewhere. Um, and the way that the dinosaurs are so expressive, the way that they're animated to be so expressive while also being kind of recognizable as as 
particular dinosaurs is is great. It's amazing. It's um, I was super impressed by by the Rite of Spring. But then it goes on past the dinosaurs, and you see the dinosaurs all die as well. It's it's the, the scope of this thing is so sweeping and ambitious, and just the idea that the guy who gave us Mickey Mouse and Snow White, or the, the people who gave us Mickey Mouse and Snow White, were also like, let's spend twenty minutes on this really slow, grim, expansive depiction of the evolution of the Earth. And they consulted with scientists, they consulted with paleontologists and astronomers and everything like that, trying to get this scientifically accurate. The cutoff before the evolution of man, because Walt didn't want to get on the wrong side of the creationists. But other than that, the, the, the scope on display here is really impressive and fascinating that they took this punt. I think it's the most, in keeping with the fact that um, the Stravinsky piece, The Rite of Spring, was very ambitious and controversial when that first dropped. <laughs> dropped. When that first came out. <laughs> <laughs> this Friday, coming to Spotify, Stravinsky, he's on it. <laughs> so I think this this kind of reflects that in just how kind of unsettling it is and at odds with everything else in the film and at odds with everything else in animation. I think it, it's really, um, it stands alone. I think they kind of rightly recognise at the end of The Rite of Spring that everybody in the audience needs a break. That is the point at which you get the intermission. And now we're going to have an intermission of our own. We're not. I just thought it'd be fun to do that. Uh, I, I like that when they come out of the intermission, you have one of the most fun parts of Fantasia, which is when they introduce the soundtrack. You see the sound wave. They do this animated, stylized interpretation of what the sound waves look like. It's so much fun. It's really kind of psychedelic, and it reminded me a lot while we're on the on the subject of Jurassic Park of the sequence in Jurassic Park where John Hammond shows them the introductory video of how they made the dinosaurs and it's him talking to the animation the animation talking back it's such a sort of playful sequence again I wonder I have to wonder if Spielberg was influenced by Fantasia in that way um yeah did, did you like this that little segment Sam yeah I like the soundtrack and they give him such a build-up as well Deems Taylor says like and now we're gonna meet the most important person in Fantasia. We're going to meet the person without whom none of this will be possible. Oh, we're going to be talking to Walt, or we're going to be talking to Stokowski. Nope, it's the soundtrack. Stokowski was fuming. He was like ready for his big introduction. <laughs> That's just kind of a fun little interlude. And then we are off to the Pastoral Symphony, which is set in sort of ancient Greek mythology several decades before Disney would eventually do Hercules. And there were quite a few things in this. Hercules isn't a film that I know massively well, but there were a few sort of animation choices, stylistic choices in this that that definitely reminded me of of what was to come in the '90s. Especially the the look of Zeus. He looked quite similar to how I remember him from from the Disney Hercules, and also all the little cute baby baby Pegasus flying around. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I hadn't I hadn't remembered anything really about this sequence. And uh, yeah, funny that we're heading to Mount Olympus. A good. 60 years was it before before we eventually got hercules so this is my i don't know what you think about this ben actually i'm going to ask you what you think what do you, what do you think about this one did you enjoy this one um it was okay it i think after the derman strang of the rite of spring it just it didn't quite compare i one of my notes for the segment was i'm bored of the centaurs now um and it was kind of uh slightly creepy the sort of the the lady centaurs who have like boobs but no nipples and it was just weird seeing that in a disney film and then you have the big buff jock centaurs coming in also while we're talking about the outdated cultural depictions then you have like the only 
black people in this film are black women centaurs who are zebras instead of horses and that made me feel uncomfortable and weird um so this was not my favorite sequence i have to say what why do you do you love this one or is this on your kind of kick it to the curb pile yeah this is what i would cut if i was going to make fantasia shorter it's the longest sequence i don't really understand why it's there it gets a lot of hate from the classical music people because it was originally based on a different piece it was originally based on a ballet called cedalese if i'm pronouncing that right by pierre which is more of a it has kind of greek mythological themes and then for for one reason or another, Walt was like, "Oh no, we need a Beethoven in there. We need a banger." And the the classical heads think that this doesn't really do justice to Beethoven. And I think it it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really do justice to itself. Like, I love ancient Greece. I love Greek mythology. I love the movie Hercules. But the designs here, I just think, are weak. The centaurs have like no detail to them. That I mean, I know it came out many years later, but the Pegasuses and the unicorns look like My Little Ponies. I quite like the gods. I quite like your Zeus and your Bacchus. And I would also have to mention, Ben, that the we got off lightly in terms of the representation of black people in this because for a long time, the zebra centaurs weren't the only black characters in Fantasia. For a long time, there was a, a little centaur called Sunflower who was a really quite vile, really viscerally disgusting caricature of a, a black girl who is sort of the maid for the other centaurs who like does their hair and like shines their hooves and things like that. And that's being cut out. I think that's the only thing that's been actually cut completely excised from a animated Disney film, at least for being racially insensitive. And it is disgusting. Wow. So they just completely got rid of that. Yeah. That was not in the version that I watched at all. No, that, that was cut out in the 1960s. Um, so for a long time, people have realized that that is just not okay. I mean, I think the, the main thing that I did like in this sequence was I really liked how nonchalantly Zeus would throw the lightning. That he's sort of lounging back in the clouds and he's like grabbing lightning out of the sky and just hoying it down super carefree. He doesn't care about the people on the ground. <laughs> um, but I think seeing as that's not either of our favorite segments, let's go to the next one, which is the Dance of the Hours, which again looking at my notes here is sexy ballet ostrich hippos doing ballet and crocodiles in capes again it's not the most heavyweight segment in fantasia but it's a fun one this is one that i kind of remembered um from my childhood i think this is one of the reasons that i would often ask for fantasia because the dance of the hours is one of the more fun sections of the show i think it kind of plays quite well to kids because it's come on it's it's hippos and ostriches doing ballet that's that's inherently funny right yeah it's it's a good laugh it's the closest fantasia comes to like a parody of classical music although it doesn't quite go there i think it's still quite respectful um there's no there's like pratfalls but there's no like kind of real satire of the kind that you would find in like some of the looney tunes cartoons that deal with classical music for example all of the dancers here were based quite faithfully on reference footage from dancers from the russian ballet which i think when you put this next to the way that rotoscoping is used in something like snow white you can see that they've really got a handle on how to use reference footage like we'll get dancers in so that we have a good point of comparison when we're animating the ballet but then we'll build on that so much to make them these really expressive really caricatured cartoon animals yeah that's really interesting actually the way that they had evolved as a studio to be able to mimic real life movements without having to literally sort of trace around sort of the way that that humans move which 
actually is quite a big leap, isn't it? It's um, it's something, and it, uh, again, you don't really notice it while you're watching it, but in hindsight, that is that sort of justifies the existence of, of the dance of the hours. But I think it's hard for that sequence not to be overshadowed because what comes next, what comes last in Fantasia is super, super intense, spine-chilling, gigantic devil man, spirits conjured from the grave, all sorts of horrific sights in A Night on Bold Mountain. Sam, why did you not warn me about how scary this was going to be? Because the most enjoyable thing about this podcast so far is finding out what frightens you in these movies and just (laughs) how frightened you were. How controversially, one of the things that frightened me is gigantic devil men conjuring armies of the dead. Who knew? Yeah, so Night on Bald Mountain is another one like The Sorcerer's Apprentice that's based quite closely on the narrative that was ascribed to the original piece. Um, And it is basically about a giant devil who materialises on Bald Mountain to kind of terrorise a small town and raise spirits and demons from the fires of hell basically and in subsequent disney media when they've tried to merchandise this character he's always referred to as chernobog who is i think a slavic god of death who was one of the inspirations for the composition but in the film and if you look at like the actual production art from the film as well he's always called the devil like this was envisioned as being the christian devil he is satan and he is horrific even though I didn't really remember this segment particularly, that design, that vision of the devil, of Chodbog or whatever he's called, <laughs> that has that been reused in something? Has that become an iconic image in its own right? Because I recognised that. Yeah, he's around um, the the cell like statues of him in that pose at Disneyland. He's in some of the Disneyland parades and some of the Disneyland like nighttime shows as well. And it's always in that iconic pose of him arising from the mountain where the mountain, the, the peak of the mountain almost becomes his wings as they open to the strains of the Mazowski track, which is an absolute banger. It's such a bop. The da, 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 da. Oh, I love it so much. It's one of the <laughs> greatest images in all of classic Disney. It just stays with you forever. And it's one of just many really striking visuals from this sequence. Yeah, is this one of your favourites? I'm getting the sense that this is um, this is a sequence that you really love. Yeah, I love it to bits. Uh, I love all of the ghosts. I love all of the demons. There's like eerie demons, spectral demons, kind of comedy demons doing little slapstick sequences. I think one thing that struck me about the animation in this is the sort of pencil drawn specters it has a really different texture to it kind of like we were talking about the end of pinocchio when monstro sort of starts storming in and he has a very different sort of yeah pencil like texture compared to a lot of the animation um but the whole thing has this real vibe of uh i'm sure they were looking at each other while they were making it going is this too much and they were like uh no i'm 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 sure it's fine it's fine right this isn't too much and they're like "Mm." This is okay. <laughs> yeah, the kids will have fallen asleep by this point, so we can do whatever we want. And then they're never going to sleep again, despite Ava Maria coming in and trying to cool things down. It's, a, it's such a weird switcheroo. I didn't necessarily feel that that choice, um, but I guess it's just to send you out on a on a much calmer note than what's come immediately before. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's another example um, which we had in the Nutcracker and also in the Dance of the Hours and in the. Uh, rites of spring it's another example of this theme of moving through time this theme of like cycles you get the sense that 
you know, Chernobog has risen and he's fallen and he will rise again. The only thing keeping him at bay is the fact that morning eventually comes around and you get these monks marching through these really serene forest landscapes to the the strains of Ave Maria, carrying candles. And you can barely even see them. They're so kind of tiny in the distance, but you just see the light of the candles that they're carrying. And I think it's I think it goes on for a bit longer than it needs to, but it's still another really striking, beautiful series of images. Well, knowing that Chernobog is gonna rise basically every single night, I'm never gonna sleep again. So Sam, now that our main discussion of the film has ended, normally we would go to Discarded, where we look at the original tale and find out what Disney cut out. But obviously Fantasia is really different. There's not a plot. They haven't adapted an original plot for this. So I guess, was was there anything cut out of Fantasia? Did they animate sequences that weren't in the finished film? Is there anything cut out? And I mean, there was a lot of pieces, a lot of classical pieces thrown around as possible segments for Fantasia. Some of them were cut out never to be used again, and some of them were cut out only to be recycled later on for other Disney anthology films, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. So I don't want to talk too much about that right now. Ooh, so we're going to come back to some Fantasia bits in the future. That's that's interesting. So as for Fantasia itself, what, what did critics say at the time? What was the reception critically to Fantasia? So it was fairly divided, or at least certainly more divided than it had been on Snow White and Pinocchio, where people, critics at least, tended to love it, even if audiences weren't quite, didn't respond quite as well to Pinocchio as they did Snow White. But here we had a split between people who were lauding it as kind of a piece of filmmaking, lauding the craft. You've got critics like Edwin Shallot from the LA Times who says, Fantasia is caviar to the general audience, ambrosia and nectar for the intelligentsia. So kind of bigging up its appeal to both of these separate audiences. He says it makes no compromises. It's the noblest experiment of a wizard in his bright field of artistry and creativeness. But... You've also got <laughs> you've also got people, um, some of whom were like classical music heads, and some of whom just saw this as a general kind of travesty on high culture. My favorite is Dorothy Thompson of the New York Herald, who writes, "I left the theater in a condition bordering on nervous breakdown. I felt as though I had been subjected to an assault. I had no desire to throw myself in adoration before the two masters who were responsible for the brutalization of sensibility in this remarkable nightmare. And then she goes on to talk about the collapse of the civilized world. Wow, that is quite a reaction, but I sort of get it as well. I think that the, that final sequence and the uh, the Rite of Spring sequence, they sort of do knock you around a bit. You would feel kind of exhausted coming out of this. It was exhausting enough watching it at home, let alone seeing it on the big screen and in in fantasound and everything <laughs> well she walked out before the final sequence she left some time around the centaurs so really some people really took against it i mean that's an extreme example but it did split people down the middle it split igor stravinsky even who was the only living composer whose work was used who wrote the rites of spring so on the one hand he wasn't happy and a lot of critics weren't happy as well because stakovsky well respected though he was did have to take apart and rearrange some of these pieces for the film as well to make them fit whatever story the artists were trying to tell or just to condense them to fit in the film so stravinsky was very unhappy about that but he has also been quoted as saying that perhaps the rite of spring sequence 
with its focus on the the evolution of the planet gets closer to what he was trying to say with that piece than the original ballet did. So everyone was kind of split on this big divide. We talked about the fact that this wasn't a traditional cinema release. It was a roadshow release. It was presented in a very different way. But how did it do financially? Did it recoup its its costs from from that presentation? Ben, it did not. So Disney were already oh, no. paying <laughs> a lot of money to rent out the theatres because for a roadshow performance you have to actually rent out the theatre and they don't show anything else for the duration of the run and they were picking up some of the cost of installing Fantasound in every theatre so even though it did find its audience, it did find success at the time, it ran at the Broadway cinema in New York for 49 weeks which was the longest any film had ever run and as it moved around the country it continued to have very long engagements, it was beaten records set by Gone with the Wind in terms of how long it was running for but it wasn't recouping, it wasn't making anywhere near Gone with the Wind amounts of money. So obviously partly because of its enormous budget and partly because of the costs of actually exhibiting it, some of which Disney had to pick up, it didn't come anywhere close to making back its budget. It made $1.3 million across its first kind of run of roadshow engagements on a $2.3 million budget, and that doesn't even account for the market and exhibition costs. It didn't make a profit until the 1960s. Oh, blimey. So especially you were saying that Pinocchio struggled financially because it was wartime, they couldn't exhibit outside of America, really. They didn't have that big international revenue coming in like they did with Snow White. So they sort of went big after Snow White and had two films that neither of them did nearly as well. And in fact, Fantasia really struggled. So that that must have put them in a really difficult position going forward. It did, but then the film we're going to talk about next time, Dumbo, kind of brought them out of that. And then for a long time, you get this cycle of big hits and big flops from Disney, where they kind of lose a lot of money on one film and then make a lot of money on the next one, like just keeping themselves afloat. And then when America actually joins the war a few years after this, they start producing things for the US government and things as well. So they, they were keeping afloat, but just barely. And this film was a big part of that. It, put, it did put a huge dint in the money that they had to work with when they were making the next few films. So Ben, as always, I'm interested to know what you would give this film out of five. I think I would give this a four out of five, especially as you approach it now. I think it's super impressive for what it is. It's amazing for its time. It's such a creative idea. And I think the presentation of it would have been amazing in a cinema. Like I said, I loved the whole framing of it. I I think it could have lost a, a segment easily. I think that's part of the value of if you went out to see this at the time and you get basically a two hour, 15 minute show plus a 15 minute interval, you go out to have, yeah, a a big night out and i think it doesn't necessarily play the way the same way at home so i would maybe lose a segment and it might sort of be a bit more of a oh go on i'll stick fantasia on again but i think it has more historical value necessarily than rewatch value but it's just a super impressive piece of work i i enjoyed watching it like i said i was done by the end of fantasia i was done and i don't (laughs) think i'm going to revisit it for a while but um i would have been in the if it split critics i would have been in the thumbs up camp for sure i mean i'm going to i respect that i'm going to have to come in with five stars though because again this is i always struggle to kind of draw that line between value as a historical artifact and value as a piece of art but i think in terms of on the art side of things it really does just tick a lot of boxes for me i think so many of the segments are really really strong that it makes up for the one kind of 
not even like a big stinker, but just could have done without sequence, which is the Pastoral Symphony for me. And yeah, just the ambition of it and what it means for the art form really adds a lot to my kind of star rating. So I'm, I'm giving it a solid five. And I would also like to know, Ben, what are your best and worst sequences from Fantasia? So I'm probably going to say the best was the Rite of Spring because I do love all the dinosaur stuff. Um, but closely followed by the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I think there's a reason that that is the one that everyone remembers. And I am probably going to say that my least favorite was the Pastoral Symphony. I was just bored of the Centaurs. What about you? Yeah, I think definitely least favorite is Pastoral Symphony. I think I've made my opinions quite clear. And favorite for me, I love Rite of Spring. I love Sorcerer's Apprentice, but I just think the Bald Mountain of Imaria thing stands out so much. It's just beautiful. There's so many stunning shots in there. Any frame from it could be taken out and put in an art gallery i think it's just gorgeous and it's badass and it's cool and that opening visual of chernobog rising from the mountain is so etched in my brain and iconic that yeah it's got to be night on board mountain you're such a goth at heart appeal <laughs> to your gothic sensibilities yeah it's it's, my, it's the teenage goth and me coming out and stan and chernobog we have no choice but to stan so now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Or, I guess in this instance, we have loads of characters. But what, what was the legacy of Fantasia? Obviously we have Fantasia 2000 coming up way, way down the line. Yeah, they made Fantasia 2000 in the year 2000, and that's kind of building on one of Walt's original ideas behind this, which is that he wanted to, and would have probably had it not kind of bombed, he wanted to bring it out every couple of years, rotating segments in and out. So he'd take a segment out, add a segment in, and there'd always be a new reason to come and see Fantasia. And that's kind of the idea that Fantasia 2000 builds on. It's not like a, a direct sequel in the way that you know, so many of the Disney direct-to-video sequels are, but it's also, spoilers, a lot better than most of those. And there's even been a kind of almost sort of live-action remake of Fantasia in the Nicolas Cage 2010 Sorcerer's Apprentice movie, which does take a little bit of inspiration from the Mickey Mouse short. Have you seen that film? I haven't. Have you seen it? Is there a broomstick sequence? There is a broomstick sequence. So it's mainly about a battle between Nicolas Cage and Alfred Molina, who are both ancient wizards fighting a duel across time to the death. But Jay Baruchel is Nicolas Cage's apprentice, and he plays kind of the Mickey Mouse role. He's not called Mickey, which I think is a huge missed opportunity. Call him Mick, call him Mike, something. I can't remember what he's called. But (laughs) there is a moment around halfway through the film where he does have to clean up the sorcerer's lair and he brings the brooms to life. But it's more kind of modern day, like mops and things like that. And there is an axe sequence as well. He chops them up and the music comes in. It's pretty, pretty When he sweeps, does it play the... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a post-credit sequence where um, you see that Mickey's hat has been in Nicolas Cage's wizard shop for a the whole time and it zooms in on that and it's like oh is there going to be a sequel with with mickey mouse in i guess i don't know what that was supposed to tease but (laughs) there wasn't one so the sorcerer's apprentice cinematic universe we're still waiting for it there's still time uh and yeah is there anything theme park wise obviously you said you can buy chernobog (laughs) at disneyland yeah fairly big chernobog presence in the parks and he's on the paris version of the storyland canal boat ride which is a very um 
I think I mentioned it last week because Monstro plays a big part in the California version, but it's just you go on a little boat through little nice dioramas of like Snow White and Cinderella and everything. And then in the Paris version, you hit Chernobog. And this was my first exposure to Chernobog was on really? the ride at Paris. And you go past, it's just like this little mountain with a little demon coming out of it. And you hear the and i'm like who is this guy i've not seen this disney movie and you know the mickey mouse hat plays a big role in a lot of disneyland iconography there the, used to be an enormous mickey mouse hat in disney hollywood studios in walt disney world but i don't think it's there anymore and inside there was kind of exhibitions about disney animation and there's also at walt disney world a fantasia themed golf course Oh, wow. So they took the really serious sort of uh, highfalutin Disney movie and turned it into a golf course. Wow, that's Disney magic for you. And obviously, I can't go without mentioning the Balls Hard 1991 Sega Genesis game based on Fantasia, um, which I am not going to be revisiting. If I want to see what the rest of the levels look like, I'll watch it on YouTube. And also the 2014 Xbox game Fantasia Music Evolved which is you play it with the connect motion sensor thing and you kind of take on the role of Stokowski orchestrating different pieces of music. And it's got all the classical pieces from the film, but it's also got Bohemian Rhapsody and Forget You by CeeLo <laughs> Green and loads of other pop hits. All the real classical classics. So in the Sega game, yeah, is it a level for each like story section is there a, is there a chernobog level ben i can't emphasize this enough i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the first level is the sorcerer's apprentice and then you leave the door which takes you out of the castle and you end up in the kind of nutcracker forest and that is as far as i got and it's as far as i'm willing to go you'd imagine they get a chernobog eventually because that lends itself so well to being a terrifying video game level yeah, we'll have to watch the YouTube videos. We'll report back next week on the uh, on the Fantasia video game. But that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar, where we'll be getting absolutely sloshed until we see pink elephants parading through the sky before unleashing a tsunami of tears with the arrival of Dumbo. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and. If you fancy dropping us a little review, we promise we'll get a whole load of sentient brooms to come and sort out your house for you. No problems. They won't multiply and flood your house. We promise. We promise. That's a guarantee. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Congratulations to you too, Ben. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening. Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disney.